Ч? Anatta, learning to 
uh, unhook the identification in relationship to phenomena that we usually would identify with. And so these two, <coughs> these uh, these uh, three or whatever, they're ways of looking and they're an important facet of what's going on there is that they are they bring a decrease in suffering in the moment. You actually feel to some degree uh, more at ease, more free, more, uh, less suffering in the moment. That's important as a skillful abiding. Learning in this moment, how can I abide with less suffering? So that's really, really important. It's a skillful means for that. But we went on uh, and said, it's not just that. They actually begin to bring, we notice, oh, when I, when I look at things that way, it changes my sense of self, it changes this, it changes that. And so insights were coming out of these ways of looking, too, that, that are very important. <coughs> then we introduced also the open awareness practice. And we did that guided meditation. And I said that the more we practice with the ways of looking at the three characteristics, the more likely it is that the consciousness kind of expands and opens up to that uh, kind of open awareness, etc., where there's that less substantiality, etc. And the other way around. In other words, some people have a way of finding themselves back in or encouraging the consciousness to open back into that space. And in that space, the three characteristics... Uh, become obvious, and you can pick that up as a as a meditation, as a sort of way of looking. So far, so good. Yeah. <coughs> uh, and again, here that open awareness is a resource. What the Buddha would call a pleasant abiding in the here and now. So, if if it's uh, something that feels like this, this really feels good. Use it that way. Use it. Hang out there. Feel the resource of that. Feel the healing of that, and, and the the benefit of that. And, again, there are insights. There's a double, a double gift there. And we also had the, the practice of the sevenfold reasoning, the, the more sort of uh, conceptual, if you like, more conceptual practice with the chariot and, and the Chandrakirti thing. Um, so, to me, it's very important, and I really, really hope that everyone can feel clear, quite clear, what one is doing in one's meditation practice. Quite clear. Understands that in the context of what I've just said. And I realize that may not be at times, or we lose that clarity, or we're not sure. But <coughs> um, this is something we can talk about, and certainly in the Q&A, and certainly in the interviews. So to bring that, and really have a sense of being clear what one is doing in meditation. It really, to me, it feels so important. And that everyone, as I said, right going back to the opening talk, everyone finds <coughs> one or two or perhaps three ways of working that work for themselves. That actually, if you feel it, bringing a sense of freedom, bringing a sense of release, relief, and actually taking you deeper in the investigation. <coughs> and a lot, and you'll see even you know tomorrow, etc., a lot's offered in terms of ways of working. And as I said in the opening talk, not, no one's going to do it all. Very, very rare to do it all. Rather, just find what works for you. Find the ways of working that work for you. It's really, really crucial. <clears throat> so, in an interview or in the question-answer, you know, if it feels like something's difficult in the meditation, or you're hitting a brick wall, or you don't understand something, or something happened and it's going backwards, or whatever it is, bring that up. And, you know, I will say, well, 
how about trying this or try that and, and offer some hopefully way through uh, that difficulty but likewise if it's going well and it seems to be, this is really humming along nicely this is okay or this is even great uh, also bring it and I'll say well that's great fantastic I'm happy and what about trying this what about trying that because we're interested as I said in deepening these practices and really refining them and taking keep keep taking them to the next level so to speak <coughs> so uh, and this is, uh, uh, again, a lot of this is review. I've actually said it before, but it feels important to say it again, because actually, I don't know if you're aware, uh, there's an enormous amount of information in this retreat. I mean, <laughs> 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 colossal amount. I don't know, um, I don't know about John, you can ask him, but I less and less anyway conceive of talks uh, for one hearing. I, I think of when I give a talk as something that, and as people regularly tell me, they l- listen to a talk five, six, ten times, and they still hear stuff that they haven't heard. So that there's a lot of material there, and it's, it's intended for repeated listening. And you can take a talk and really take it as a sort of, uh, it, it will unfold you into uh, depth of practice, etc. It's not, I don't, or occasionally I think of a talk as just a one-off, that's it. You can listen to it once and you've pretty much got everything. But less and less do I do that. And of course, like everything else, it has a plus side and a a downside. But it is being recorded, etc. So one one of the things we've said before is (coughs) this self and this sense of self, or we could say this idea, that this word that sometimes people use, selfing, that exists and manifests at a number of different levels. We could say a spectrum from the gross to the subtle, to the very, very subtle. So selfing in terms of defining myself, I am a failure, I am a angry person, I am a this, I am a that, uh, is an important, actually quite painful level of, of selfing. And the psychological level of selfing, really important. I uh, touched on that uh, near the beginning of the tree and ways of looking at that and, and, and working with that. Um, what we could call the more uh, the more obvious manifestations of selfing. These are really, really important. But <coughs> selfing keeps existing at more and more subtle levels, more and more subtle levels. And in the most subtle levels, those are, if you like, the seeds, the roots of the whole uh, deal of selfing. And so those need looking at too, at some point. And so we talked about, for instance... You know, to stay at bare attention, or some people stay at contact, that's important. It cuts a lot of the grosser levels of selfing, a lot of the papancha or psychologizing that, that comes in, the story, etc. But it won't, in itself, get to the deeper seeds of uh, delusion and, and the seeds that build selfing. I was talking with someone today and uh, talking about the place of samatha and metta in this, because (coughs) when there is some degree of collectedness and unification and quietness, it's not that selfing has stopped then, when the metta is going well, when the samadhi is going It's not that selfing has stopped, it's just the grosser levels of selfing have stopped. So it's not that there is no self at that point, it's not that selfing is not occurring, it's just that the grosser levels have stopped. So why? one of the reasons why I say 50-50 Samadhi insight, metta insight, is get to hang out in those spaces where the grosser bits are quiet 
and actually begin to see the eyes get used to, actually there's something still going on here, but it's more subtle. Uh, and it's still, as we would say, it's still constructed. So it's not just selfing at the level of thought or story that we're interested. As important as that is, it is important to work at that level too. So this whole project here is multi-leveled. It's multi-leveled, and we want to... It's not that we throw out early levels. We keep them. But we, we hopefully, as practice deepens, we get more and more flexible. And we can look at a gross level, this issue in my life, and how the personality is kind of contracting around that, and the old identities and all that. That stays important. But we're also expanding our capability to look at the subtler roots of self-delusion and delusion in general. So we want to keep everything and kind of just uh, also have more and more flexibility. <laughs> are you wanting to know if we're still here? I am, yeah. Is it too hot? It's too hot. People are afraid. Say something. Okay. Please, please do say something, because I keep saying, um, it's not obvious, but everyone's giving a talk. We're all giving the talk together, so if people start fading, it affects things. So, um, if someone would like to open a couple of windows, perhaps. That one's open. All three windows are open, so something's going on. Is there a Okay, thanks, Adela. Yeah, if we keep the door open. Um, Beth, can I open a bit? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If we open the door, Rob, the hungry ghosts will come in. Okay. Um, were you present enough to hear what I've said so far? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> okay. Now, at this point in the retreat, as far as my thread is concerned, we're going deeper and deeper, more and more into those subtle seeds, okay? And part of what I will be doing is um, giving a map, a possible map, of the way some of these avenues might unfold for a dedicated meditator in time, in time. Um, <clears throat> so with the three characteristics, for instance, uh, we began kind of extracting conclusions from that practice, that suffering was dependent on a certain way of looking, that self-sense was dependent on a certain way of looking, in other words, the more clinging, the more self-sense, we've been through this, that substantiality, and then last night as well, that thingness, objectness, perception itself was also dependent. Um, this has to do with the we're getting now into, as I said, right at the beginning, we couldn't divide empty, could divide emptiness into the emptiness of the self and the emptiness of phenomena. It's the same emptiness, but just for pedagogical purposes. And beginning to get more into the emptiness of phenomena. And in a way, that's a hot... So the route I'm taking meditatively is... Uh, good think about this. Like, what's easiest to see first? Let's do that first, and then build on that. So generally speaking... Some phenomena, like a, uh, 
like a country. We started with things like a country, because it's quite easy to see the emptiness of a country. And then we went to the self, and now we're starting to come back to phenomena, more subtle phenomena, aggregates, uh, uh, you know, body, etc., uh, perception, and actually look at those and see their emptiness too. So we're moving deeper and deeper in, into this. The empty, uh, rather, the delusion of phenomena inherently existing is actually, in a way, uh, a subtler seed of the delusion of self. <clears throat> Later, next week, we will talk about really the subtle end of this. If you want to, uh, you have, have to see, so I'm, I'm aware next week I'll be putting out a map that, I don't know, maybe you'll be interested, maybe not, and it's fine if you're not, but... Um, talking about how would a meditator see that awareness is actually empty of inherent existence? How would a meditator see that uh, time and the present moment are empty of inherent existence, that space is empty? You know, these kind of very, very subtle building blocks of our reality. So there's a a journey into that uh, subtlety. And what I want to present is possible pathways of the meditative journey if you follow these, these avenues. So, what I feel uh, might, in, in, in the thread that I'm trying to present, uh, it would probably be enough for a dedicated medita- meditator for a good few years of practice. I mean, minimum. Minimum. So, it's just like, here's this, and take it if you want it, um, but not to get hung up there. So, presenting different possibilities in the way they might unfold with dedication. But sometimes, as I said, going back to a talk on relationship with practice, what happens when we hear about stuff when we're not quite there yet? What happens if someone lays out a map? How easily, and maybe you've felt it already, the inner critic comes in, and the comparing mind. I'm not there yet. Maybe someone else is there. And what happens? And is, is uh, and again, it's up to you guys if the, you know... Uh, You'll have to tell me if you want to hear that stuff in a way. But um, so sometimes we can have a sense of hearing about some uh, direction, uh, an unfoldment of some direction, actually beyond where we are at the moment, and someone thinks, oh, uh, or shoot, uh, as to paraphrase what someone said in an interview this morning, <laughs> to translate into more um, <laughs> useful English. Um, or, wow. Gosh, look at that. I've felt this much freedom so far in practice, and now I'm hearing there's even more freedom. How wonderful. How wonderful. Would I really want to think this much that I've experienced so far is it? Is it? Maybe I have to find something else to do? Or is actually someone saying, this is great, so far this is great. I've seen this letting go, I've seen that letting go. And you know what? You can go a bit further and a bit further. So we can see it as a kind of reflection on the inner critic. And say, oh no, there's more and terrible, I'll never get there. Or actually, how wonderful, more freedom is waiting. And uh, some maps are available. So beware, beware, beware the inner critic, the comparing mind. It does come in. It comes in for a lot, a lot of people. And it's extremely painful and kind of just jams up the works there. Just jams <coughs> up the works. People have very different histories. At some point in this retreat, if I, if it's okay with you, and we do continue the map next week, um, I'm pretty sure that I will be talking beyond where everyone is in practice. So there'll, there'll be points where everyone just feels like, okay, I've got this, I understand this, I'm putting this much into practice, and I'm hearing about this. And it's just like, okay, 
big deal. But what what we stay with in the practice, and what I want to be hearing about in questions and in interviews, is where your practice is at and how that is unfolding, and what's happening for you in your practice. But you know, feedback to me because it doesn't have to be that way. A general point here, which. I haven't mentioned yet, um, and it, it may seem a little abstract. <clears throat> in the Pali Canon, some of you will be aware, in the sort of initial, what's called the, the first turning of the wheel, the Buddha was quite clear, for the most part, for the most part, uh, that certain questions about things existing or not existing, or the, does the world exist, or this and that, or do I exist, were actually out of bounds that one didn't go there as a practitioner and a meditator. And actually, it wasn't helpful to ask such questions. And rather, the emphasis in the Pali Canon, again, for the most part, it's really not 100%, but for the most part, seems to be on uh, the world of experience and learning to uh, inquire into, relate to that world of experience very, very simply, and learn to untangle the suffering from it, Un, uh, take away the supports for the suffering in it, but also for the experience itself. And that's what we're talking about with perception phase. You're actually learning uh, just in terms of experience. I'm not actually saying anything about a world out there, etc. I'm just dealing with my experience and learning how to uh, take away the supports for suffering there and actually for the experience itself. So I'm not sure, but I've heard or read that in philosophical circles, in Western philosophical circles, I could have this wrong, the word for that is a phenomenological approach. I said I could have that wrong, but uh, maybe someone else knows, I don't know. Phenomenological is the Western word of simply paying attention to how your experience is, how we subjectively perceive it. So it's it's a phenomenological (coughs) approach without asking anything about what is another philosophical word, ontological status of a world out there. Ontological means the, the being status, the isness or not, the, the reality status of a world out there. In the Pali Canon, it's this phenomenological approach, just about experience, and how is the suffering and the experience both fabricated, this word sankharad or concocted. How is it being built? How is it being supported? And not going to questions of, do I really exist? Do I not exist? Does the world really exist? Etc. Et just avoiding that. Right. Well, I don't know much about this, but little. <coughs> in phenomenology, there's, it's called phenomenological reduction. Mm-hmm. And that's a practice, that they, they, they also call it bracketing where you suspend belief, you pay attention to some phenomena or experience, but you bracket or suspend belief about whether it exists or not. Okay, good. Did everyone hear that? No. No? So, Bill Bill sharing um, (coughs) that uh, in philosophical language, uh, they talk about the phenomenological reduction, reduction, uh, which is learning to relate in terms of experience and the phenomena of experience, but kind of suspending the question of whether they exist or not really. It's just in terms of... that be fair? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so that's essentially 
you could say that sums up pretty well the, the Buddha's inclination of the way he's teaching in the in the Pali Canon, uh, in terms of certainly in terms of the approach to meditation. Something happened. I'm talking in generalities here. I'm talking generalities. Something happened. I don't quite know the history of it, but that changed gradually, or it seems to me to have changed gradually with the uh, growth of the Mahayana and uh, I think the third. 4th, 5th centuries, uh, two very important Indian Buddhist philosophers, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, began to ask this question about what can we uh, really know about reality. And over the next... Buddhist philosophers. Yes, yes, Buddhist philosophers. And over the next, um, well, until the present, actually, the, the, the debate between these two approaches, but more between the understanding of emptiness and the understanding of what's called valid cognition about the world. That debate continues to this day. And people have given different answers and said, I've got it sorted. But there's actually a big difference of opinion. It's quite a, quite a complicated subject. I don't know if you've studied that part in epistemology in your course yet, Virginia. No? comes later. Um, different, this is uh, taken to its sort of apex, really, uh, in, in Tibetan uh, Buddhism, and the different streams of Tibetan Buddhism debate with each other and don't actually agree. So it's a huge project. Um, and I said, to when Harry asked that question, it's like, <coughs> it's hard to say what we're going to conclude about conventional reality out there. It's actually hard to say, and sometimes the tendency is just just don't ask any questions, just agree that conventionally we speak of this and we speak of that and we speak of, and, and just leave it at that, and that's one approach. I just mentioned that, and I, I don't, uh, don't want to go too much into it right now. The last little thing is a partial response, having said that, a partial response to Beth's question last night. And she said, well, we're talking about clinging and the fading of perception. And she said, well, I'm not clinging, but you're still there. I'm still seeing you. And just a partial, partial response for now. And it may be that much later, uh, t- really t- towards the end, I revisit this and fill it out a bit. <coughs> Mostly, you would do very well just taking a phenomenological approach, ignoring uh, the reality or the world out there, and just trusting, as I said, where suffering is in one's practice, and going deeper and deeper with that, and not asking those other questions. And that will... I trust, change something profound in, in one's relationship with existence and bring a tremendous amount of freedom. It's very easy to get sidetracked with these other questions. Although, I have a huge, huge respect, and I actually am beginning to get more and more interested in that debate myself. I can't say I understand it fully at this point. So, I'm not clinging, and you're still there, and you're not fading. As I said just very briefly last night, clinging, like everything else, is... Uh, is a spectrum. So I can cling a lot, I can cling a little, a little, a little. Some of the very, very subtle clinging is hard to see. But clinging is also a a sloppy word that includes identification. In other words, and we talked about this, what if I'm identifying with consciousness when I look at something, which I usually am, and I can assume that I am identifying with consciousness unless I deliberately, explicitly, and practicing unhooking that identification with awareness. It will usually be there, and it's a, it's, it's a builder of experience. That degree of identification is a builder of experience. If this anatta practice, if one takes it and really develops it, and as I said, expands gradually one's range of phenomena that one can 
drop the identification with, unhook the identification. Eventually one is able to, for stretches of time or even just for a brief moment, uh, drop the identification with awareness. And when one does that, and I think I mentioned this briefly, um, it's, it's actually quite remarkable at that stage because at that point none of the five khandhas are being identified with, or perhaps only very, very subtly. So one of the most obvious things that can happen, or one of the most kind of, well, yeah, whatever, it's, um, is basically the sense of freedom really opens up. Not the, the, There's very little identification with any of the kinds of things. It just opens up a very big freedom. Another is that things actually fade, that the perception of things, objects, actually fades. But a third is that our sense of time begins to fall apart. Our sense of past, present, future begins to fall apart. And there's many different ways meditatively this can happen. So it could be, for some, that even the visual sense of a thing begins to fall apart. It could be that the visual sense stays, but the time sense begins to fall apart. No no longer a real sense of a a meaningful... It's like the construct of time is not being supported with that degree of letting go. So the unfabricating of perception can happen in different ways. It could be that all three of those happen, or two of them, or whatever. Um, but the principle remains that uh, the deeper we let go, the less support we are giving to the, the perception of thingness of things. And, uh, and that, will, that will come out of that. But as I say, that's only a partial answer, and I hope that later I can uh, revisit it. Okay, Stumm, from me, I think. Um, any questions about anything? Just if there are. About, about, yeah, yeah, please. Um, I'm wondering what the difference is between this fading that you're talking about that comes about through, <coughs> you know, looking directly but not grasping in any way. Uh, and, you know, you used the example yesterday of pain, mm-hmm. just sort of disappearing. What's the difference between that and, and where, if PT is around and that sort of dissolves pain? Yeah, good. Could you hear that? Couldn't hear the last part of it. What's the difference between, excuse me, looking at pain and working in this way where one's letting go of the clinging or the identification or some other supporting factor of the thingness of it, and it fading. What's the difference between that and piti coming, uh, ple- pleasure in the body coming, that sort of rapture from meditation or, or well-being coming, and uh, taking the place of the pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in a way, there's no difference. Okay. In a way, there's no difference. Uh, you can go, so someone who develops a lot of samatha meditation, and I think I threw this out at some point, <coughs> someone who develops a lot of samatha meditation actually gets very, very familiar with, say, the feeling of PT in the body, the feeling of well-being or, or pleasant vibration or whatever it is in the body. And it becomes something that you can call up at will, in, in time, if you really do it, call up at will and kind of move around the body and, and uh, etc. Uh, which obviously is a very... Um, you know, lovely and, and useful skill to have, you know. Uh, not as remarkable as it might sound. So it's, it's quite possible for someone who dedicates themselves a little bit to samatha. So one way of doing what Richard's talking about is actually having that familiarity with the PT and actually kind of spreading it over the body and spreading it over an area that feels pain. And it begins to 
color it, color what was unpleasant as pleasant. Uh, that doesn't quite give the fullness of understanding because oftentimes people even in here have reported looking at a pain and letting go of clinging and actually in its place comes pleasure and just seeing that and kind of reporting it. <coughs> Very rare to find this, but one way... Um, how do I begin explaining this? Um, has everyone heard of the eight jhanas? Yeah. 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 Eight? Eight, well, four form jhanas and four forms. Mm-hmm. Yes? Who, who hasn't? It's fine, I, I can I explain. I don't know what they are. Okay. So, the Buddha talks very commonly about um, eight states of deepening absorption in meditation. Uh, really briefly. The first one is characterized by absorption in physical bliss or, or well-being. Second one, by an absorption in happiness. Third one, by an absorption in kind of peacefulness. Fourth one in stillness or real deep kind of equanimity still. The fifth one in an infinite expanse of space. Solidity has vanished and there's just space. Sixth one, an infinite expanse of consciousness. Seventh one, space goes and it's just nothing. It's not even space, it's nothingness. Eighth one, it's not even nothingness. We call it the uh, realm of neither perception nor non-perception. At that point the mind is not even... Uh, kind of landing on a nothing. So, in one, from one point of view, what these are are uh, deeper states of concentration, of course. But they're also, and and you probably would rarely hear, hear this talk about, but they're also states of less and less fabricating of perception. You understand? They're less and less building of a world, which means, which is why you can arrive at these via insight. And, and an insight meditator will often find themselves stumbling into one of these uh, because they're letting go uh, of what's supporting our more solid view of reality. Does that make sense? So when we are letting go, it's, um, it's not surprising that some of that other perception comes up. In a way, the perception of PT and well-being is, you could say, less solid, more refined, less substantial than a perception of pain, which tends to be a real perception of solidity, etc. It's because you're you're not feeding the substantiality in the sort of, it's a more open, less substantial sense of perception of the body. Does this make sense? Or is it yeah? I guess the main confusion I had is that you're talking about in the first instance going directly to the pain mm-hmm. and not having a push or a pull and therefore Whereas the, the the sort of cultivation of pity is very much if there is pain, not not to go there, to right. go somewhere nice and yeah. bring that up, and then yeah, yeah. So I said there's a samadhi way of doing it, a samatha way of doing it, which you know we we've been working on. Don't go straight into the pain. Don't get sucked into it. Mm-hmm. Actually, learn to stay where it's nice and cultivate that, and then eventually you can spread that out. An insight way will bring the same thing because you're not supporting what it takes for the pain to be there as a perception. In the phenomenological, phenomenological mode, the, the experience of the pain is actually quite built. And when I let go, I'm not building it so much, so less and less solidity, substantiality, thingness comes in. And PT is a lot less thing and perception than, than pain. Yeah. And it's sort of a side question is, is it like kind of paracetamol or is it like ibuprofen? In that, is there any sort of healing aspect? Because I, I'm, I'm concerned that if I have pain... Yeah and that I can sit through it in whatever way, right. um, that I'm actually doing myself more damage 
and if it's just a masking of pain, yeah. whereas if there's actually yeah. some sort of physiological change mm-hmm. that's helping a healing process. Mm-hmm. Then. Uh, I- it, it may be both, I don't know. I mean, I would certainly more tend towards the latter, that there's a physiological process that actually is opening the whole thing up to. But um, I'd, say, I'd say more just a very practical thing, which is if it's uh, something that when you get up from meditation, you're still in some degree of pain ten minutes later, mm-hmm. then best not to, put, you know, you pushed it to Even if you felt okay during the sitting, you've overdone it. Mm-hmm. And just to watch that, to just... Not even going to your question, but just something very practical about it. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it called neither perception nor non-perception? Because of the thing that I'm talking about. It's well, actually, it's a little bit related. Um, to perceive something is to make a thing of something. So. Uh, we tend to think, I make a thing of the body, but then I go beyond the body in the realm of infinite space, and it's, I'm, I'm not making a body, but I, there's space there. I've, that's the next thing that I'm making something. It's a much more subtle thing. I go beyond that, and, until eventually I get to a nothing, and I can still make something out of nothing, by the mind going, wow, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's striking, the nothingness is striking. So the mind is kind of landing on the, co- on the concept and the perception because remember, conceiving and perceiving, and the way I'm using those terms, go together, nothing. And then it even goes, it sort of, un, it doesn't land on the, on the perception or the conception of nothingness. But what it's, the mind is kind of, it's not gone completely beyond perception, it's still, uh, it's still, it's almost like struck by the fact that it's not landing on anything. And it, so it's not, it's kind of not really perceiving, but it's not really not perceiving either. It's sort of just, it's almost like just falling endlessly through, through space and just not, not landing on anything. And the mind is stuck, struck by that, and that's what it's sort of perceiving. But I mean, it's, it's an incredibly refined state. Um, but rather than talk about abstractions for what, for what, for most people in here, what's, what's, what uh, feels important for you, for you guys right now? Um, what, what the best question about um, whether you weren't fading it. Yeah. <coughs> is that the same for because I was trying to do it with sounds yesterday. Yeah. And um, yeah. There was still there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so when when there's vision and sound, we don't tend to identify uh, what you'll what you'll notice is if I if I really don't like the sound and I really get wrapped up in my aversion, it's gonna be louder. Okay. If I'm not too bothered with it, it just takes its place kind of in the background of things. But generally, with sound and with vision, we don't think, I am that sound. The identification there will be with the knower, with the awareness. And like I said, that's a more subtle... It it takes Most people, it takes quite a lot of developing their anatta practice to be able to disidentify with the knowing. The, the consciousness awareness aspect, and if you but if you can do that with sound, you may find it's hard to put it into words. What happens? You may find that it it lo- it it becomes more diffuse and less sort of. I, uh, it's like less uh, thingy, less uh, defined. What's that? Well, less real. Less real and less sort of. Less punctuated. Punctuated, less defined, you know. So uh, you will find that's what it's on its way as, as an actual thing, a, a perception. It begins kind of, you know. 
Could an extremely advanced meditator make it disappear? Sound? Uh, Yes. But um, I I would say people are different with this. And it's the same with samadhi. Some people's description of jhana is that you don't hear anything. Someone could come and chop your head off and you wouldn't notice and stuff like that. Um, I've never personally experienced that degree of absorption. But uh, I'm sure it exists in the Buddha accounts... um, there was a story again. I don't know where it is. Where there's massive, massive thunderstorm, colossal, and uh, trees have come down, and a person's been killed, and they go to the Buddha and say, "This happened." So I was, I was deep in, I was deep in this uh, fading of things, and I didn't, didn't, you know, didn't. Sorry, I had no idea, you know. Excuse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know. Again, what's more important is the insight, the insight, the insight. Experiences of jet fighters suddenly screaming through the sky while I was meditating, and it feels like they—it feels like they go completely through you. You mm-hmm. become one with the sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's—I mean, has that got anything to do with this? I'll, I'll come back to this. That sort of um, what's happened there is that there's less of a separation between the subject and the object, but it's not. Um, it's 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 all part of what fades. So partly, you know, we talked about suffering fades, self sense fades, substantiality fades, also separation sense fades. Mm-hmm. Uh, that too, um, but there there's still more. You know, in terms of yeah. Sort of relates to what you talked about last night, which is uh, how when the sense of self loses its solidity, mm-hmm. the sense of the perceived object also loses its solidity. Yeah, say that again. Say, say that again. Hmm? Say it again, just so everyone can get it. The idea is that when the sense of self loses its solidity, yeah. The uh, sense of the perceived object loses its solidity yeah. as well. Yes. So. So, I think I need to tell the story with a bit of details because, as we said, the devil is in the details. Okay. So <coughs> it. Um, I was just walking for the walking meditation on the front lawn. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get into this space where, you know, I was uh, softening the sense of building self Mm -hmm. and the sense of separation Mm -hmm. between myself and the perceived object. Mm -hmm. And to help me with that, I was using a technique I learned a long time ago, which is as John said, you know, the six sense sphere, mm-hmm. rather than looking at them as the six sense door. Mm-hmm. And so for the visual, it's a little tricky because looking at visual as a 360 degrees, we are so used to look at things from the perspective of pointing out straightforward and sort of uh, grabbing the object Mm -hmm. as a a seen object, but with that perspective idea. So the technique is to sort of uh, try to relax the eyes and 
360 is maybe a little hard to do, but 180. Sure. So walking around with more of a getting a sense of what you see from the side, and, and that really softens yeah. things up. Yeah, good. And so as I turn around and take a pause to uh, look at the grass stretching in front of me, sort of based in the sun, Sure enough, here it was, you know, the grass was greener. <laughs> yeah, good. So I thought about April and I sort of laughed, but I, I looked at it again, and uh, then I thought, you know, well, yes, the grass is greener, but it's not greener because it's a more beautiful object uh, colored with a better brand of pink, let's say. You know, it's greener because it has acquired a sense of uh, brightness, of radiancy. <coughs> so then it came to me that uh, actually because my sense of building the self was loosening, then what I was seeing was not so much the object as a solid object, but more deconstruction of the grass, and I was starting to see more the energy of the mm -hmm, grass, mm -hmm. more a uh, sense of <coughs> vibration. Mm -hmm. And then I thought also, you know, in this sort of state of mind, it's really hard to just look at one blade of grass, you know. It was I was more drawn to sort of look at the general pattern. Mm -hmm and that sense of dancing energy, yeah. which is sort of made me think, you know, that's pretty much what you said when the object blurs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, yeah, that's just what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's not seeing a grass as a more beauf beautiful sort of fixed or solid object, but it's seeing, it's sort of dissolving the grass into a more subtle layer of existence, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the grass was still there, and sure, I enjoyed sure. the grass, but it was sort of dissolving. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful, yes. So, a couple of things just to extract from that, uh, and what you started with, um, when the self-sense fades, the perception of the object fades. So like everything else, there's a dependent, or I, there's a mutual dependency there. Self-sense is stronger, perception of object is stronger. There, That's another uh, factor. You could say when identification is stronger, perception of object is stronger. So self-sense, clinging, all these go together as factors with, with perception of object. Um, when there is the self, and we'll get to this at quite a subtle level later, <coughs> when there is the self, there is the self-interest. And the way, and self is interested in objects for what they can give the self. Will I like it? Will I not like it? Do I want more of it? Do I want less of it? So, all wrapped up in, in perception is the investment of the self. And that to bring out another thing that Noel was pointing to, it's like, because of that, the, the, the perception tends to go to a particular in the visual field that thing I like or I don't like, and draws out the perception of the particular. So one possibility is when the self-sense fades, the, the particularities get uh, uh, don't get drawn out so much, and it's more a sense of the visual field. 
again, you can go around it exactly the opposite way because of the mutual dependency. You could actually experiment with, let's just see this as a visual field. Open up the awareness. Instead of the constant sort of moving from particular to particular, this thing to that thing, this person to that person, actually just open up, like right now, can you get a sense? Just open up to the whole visual field. And see it as visual field, 180 degrees, maybe a bit more. It's just visual field, and there's less of a sense of drawing out particulars. Less drawing out particular, self-sense will also fade a little bit. Everything's built, built together. And so you can go, you can go things, go uh, arrive at things from multiple directions. I've also been doing that. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the whole world just becomes flat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like an oil painting yes. or something. Good. Good. Particularly outside. Yeah. Like looking at distance, it's yeah. harder in a room which is mm-hmm. pretty square. Yes. Yes. And very normal. Um, in fact, very you know very helpful. That's that's the sense of solidity and substantiality beginning to go from from the visual field. And what you want in that, and again, just to draw out something I've said before, but it's important, is because um, someone came to me and they had actually done quite a lot of drugs as a teenager and were beginning to have this experience when they were meditating and were really concerned about it, that they were going crazy and it was... But um, with a little encouragement, they were actually, actu- actually able to notice when that happens, there's quite a sense of freedom there with it. And to notice that and enjoy it. And as I've said before, that's part of what cements the insight and it begins to take it deeper. So enjoy it. Feel the freedom of that. Because what happens when, when the visual field is just seen as visual field, it, le- it loses some of its wor- worldiness and solidity and a sense of space opens. You know, and, and that sense of space has with it a sense of freedom. So that will help the whole thing. I, I was thinking um, along the same lines as Noel, um, <coughs> trying to get more insight out of the, these experiences, and I came to the conclusion that just as when we're not, when we're caught up in our in our sort of self busy mind, we don't listen to, we don't hear birds, you don't hear anything, mm-hmm. um, and then you let the self sense drop and then of course you can hear everything just so you can with with the visual mm-hmm. and it made me think that we're projecting ourselves onto the visual when we're in our self world so we're projecting what we do want to see what we don't want to see just like we do when we hear with everything with smells and then when the self sense shrinks we're we're turning into this beautiful self you know like the beautiful factors and it's that that we're then reflecting mm-hmm. onto reality. Mm-hmm. So it came to me as quite a nice thing that you're seeing the beauty in yourself when yes. you're in that state. Yes, lovely. And so everything is, the whole uh, duality just sort of disappears and then everything becomes beautiful because it's a reflection of you. Yeah. The duality between self and the world, yeah. so to speak. And, yeah. the duality be- and the duality that you're projecting on mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Did, did people get that? Yeah. So very, very important. And this is, um, <coughs> uh, yeah, key, key. I mean, in a number of ways, um, we see what we project to a large extent. And you know, you know here already. In however many, how long we've we been here? Two weeks. Two weeks. Mm-hmm. In two weeks of retreat, you walk out onto the front lawn one day, and it's miserable you know, England and Guy House and rain and da-da-da, and it's coloured a certain way. Another time, the mind is in a different space, you walk out and you're in a deva realm. Same front lawn, um, 
that we, we project that out and uh, to realize that, that we're not ac- we don't actually experience something independent of our projections. So that's going back to what I was saying about the whole notion of bare attention, as if there is some kind of middle point of attention that doesn't project anything out. You cannot find it. You cannot, we're always projecting something out, and the question is what? How do I, what, world, what kind of world do I want to live in? So as I was saying when I talked just briefly in the other question, but generosity shapes my world a certain way. Love shapes my world. Meta, compassion, colors my world a certain way. If I want to live in a beautiful world, that's what I've got to do, you know, uh, in, in my acts and in my, my mindset. And it has the insight of emptiness in it. There's, there's no world independent of that. It's just a separate. That duality is something we imagine. I think for me it's interesting because strength. I normally have more problems with my thoughts, but actually in that situation I can see when I'm thinking bad things, then bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Like most people, that's like a given. You know, like if you're in a bad mood, then everything. You know, when you right. wake up in the morning, everything goes wrong. And, but actually, for it to affect what you're seeing, mm-hmm. the the phenomenological world mm-hmm. rather than just the world in your head, yes. is is really powerful because yeah, yeah. it just shows how absolutely. how incredible it is. Yeah. So when I talk about the emptiness of perception, that's partly what I'm talking about. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and it's there, and we fabricate the perception of the world, and uh, you, you cannot get away from that. You cannot get away from that as as a consciousness. You cannot get away from it, um, and. It, I, I think it's just immensely important uh, as a practitioner to, to t- take that and keep going with that and kind of realize the full import of it. Mm, wonderful. Right, yeah. Um, I've got something around believing thought and when you're seeing thought and it's so, and you're doing something sort of an enough style, uh-huh. and it's so not self that it's got a different voice. A, a different voice than. And the voice of your normal think, thinking self, it's uh-huh. got like accents, they're like, there's like, and it's sort of just like completely different characters. Like you have a, a Greek guy in your head or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they speak, they're sort of speaking languages of, and words which sort of crumble, like it's sort of, the word like, this sort of sentence becomes like a Dali painting. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then, and then, and then, and then, so I, I'm, I'm really disgusting my thoughts. Because I'm, I'm seeing, like, it's just, it's like, well, where is this nonsense? Yeah. This garbage. Okay. And then, it's sort of, well, um, but that, that, that tends to be sort of gobbledygook. But then there's thoughts which suddenly, like, the, the sort of the, the eye sense comes into mm-hmm. it. And they're still, they're, they're closer to my voice, but mm-hmm. slightly different. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay. And then it's sort of, I guess it's the spectrum, and then it's sort of like the very, the, what my recognisable thought. Yeah. And then it's sort of, it's quite, um, the sense of nothing to trust, you can't trust in any of, but, in, but then, but then there's, the, there's like sort of quite, just quite wholesome thoughts as well, yeah. and it's like, well, yeah. they're sort of, they're the same stuff, but just with like different yeah. directions. Good. And so, Good. Um, it's a bit. It's not disconcerting because um, it's. But the question of question it mainly came from sort of knowing if there was a thought, and then actually wanting, yeah, I'd like to take that one as, yeah. as I'll take that one as yeah. a good aspiration mm-hmm, thought. Mm-hmm. 
versus this sort of other drunk. Yeah. Northern, that northerner guy with some weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm not going to hear that one. They're not thinking in terms of thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's just a bit weird. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I'm not sure about the northerners and, and the Greeks, but... Um, <laughs> no Greeks, you said. No Greeks, yeah, okay. So, um, th- but this is important in terms of... It goes back to something about it's like we have different gears as practitioners or different modes so one mode I can be in is whatever comes up I'll see it as not self regardless in, in that mode let that stretch of a sitting or whatever I'm just in that way of relating to things it could be great it could be not so good it could be whatever but it's just not self not self not self if you're doing the answer it's just not self and just let it go whatever it is and that's the mode that I'm in at that time that's what I'm practicing at other times there's really, really important uh, place to differentiate and pick and choose between thoughts. And the Buddha actually said it was a, a major turning point in his practice when he divided thoughts into two, the wholesome and the unwholesome, and decided the, these wholesome ones I'll encourage and the unwholesome ones I'll try and let go of. Uh, so that's another mode, kind of as an aspiration comes in, actually dwelling with that sense of aspiration and taking it on board and, and aligning oneself with it and letting it touch the heart and uh, you know, think, reflecting on it. Um, so, in a way, to do that second one, take, taking things on board and rejecting others, kind of letting go of others, you, you can also do that in a way without any self-view. It's just a thought and the sense of aligning, none of which have to be self. Probably that might be difficult for a person to do without a lot of practice, but te- technically speaking, it's possible, uh, or certainly possible to reach a point where you think in those terms of alignment and aspiration, instead of without any self coming in. But for now, you might want to just think of yourself as having different gears, and it's really fine to go back into the gear of self, as we talked about earlier in the retreat, fine to be in the gear of self, and what am I aspiring to? What's beautiful to me? What's calling me? What do I want to give? All that. And rejecting the thoughts, or not rejecting, but learning to let go of the thoughts that are not so helpful. And at other times, just in, in the mode of anatta, for instance, and just all... And seeing they will lead in slightly different, but both both really helpful directions. Does that? Yeah. yeah important. Mm. So is the unwholesome thoughts what uh, <coughs> they call Mara? Mara. Is that sort of the unwholesome thoughts? People people have different interpretations of what Mara is. Um, uh, I mean. If we do call it Mara, how will it help you? And if we don't call it Mara, how will it help you? Um, I don't know, I'd have to think about okay. it. Okay. I mean, like I said, people have very... a whole, you know, range of what people believe, you know, Mara represents or is. Mm-hmm. I think what's more important, what's more fundamental is knowing what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Mm-hmm. And that's a sense of... Things are wholesome if they lead to my freedom from suffering mm. and my well-being and, and that of others. And then it's wholesome. And you can trust it. You, can, you want to cultivate that. And unwholesome is that which leads to my suffering and the suffering of others. And, and it's just a sense of bec- becoming more and more attuned to when the mind is in one, one direction or another direction, learning, to, learning to, to, as the Buddha would say, starve one, the unwholesome, and feed the other. And that... That's a huge part of practice, huge. So what we call that, you can call it whatever you want, you know. But mm-hmm. that principle is, is really important, and that's a that stays with us, you know, 
we we never lose that, no matter how much emptiness practice we do. It doesn't. We never lose that distinction between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So we always have that ability to shift into that gear and see things that way. And it's really important. Because yeah. a lot of our happiness actually depends on that, our ability to distinguish the wholesome from the unwholesome and to mm-hmm. and to nourish the wholesome. That's where a lot of our happiness comes from. A lot of our suffering comes from uh, feeding the unwholesome. So, as we um, progress as practitioners, we get to notice more and more the unwholesome. Both. Some things won't seem unwholesome, but... Yeah, I would say both. One notices more unwholesome, more subtle aspects of what might be unwholesome, and more wholesome as well. Mm. You want both. So it's just the, the general sensitivity and awareness increases, mm. not in a linear way, but gradually over, with practice. Yeah, and that's that's big, big part of practice. Yeah, very important. Question. Yeah. Um, I wondered if I, I uh, spent a lot of time today thinking about preferences. Yeah. And good. no preferences. Yeah, good, good, yeah. And um, found it really hard okay. to, um, to think of myself or think of it. Of, <laughs> <laughs> of not having preferences. Uh-huh. And wondered if you would say some more about that. Yeah. About, I mean, I, I can understand holy disinterest. Mm-hmm. But I don't quite grasp how to be not to have preferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Porridge. <laughs> Say what? Is it porridge again? <laughs> <laughs> um. Cessation of porridge. <laughs> or rice and peanut butter. Rice cakes and peanut butter. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, this is an important question. So, um, I think partly, partly, just to begin, it relates to to something I was trying to draw out at the beginning of the retreat, which sometimes when we hear about some of these teachings, like, uh, we, we jump to what it would it look like if I had, you know, what would I be if I, if, if, ev- or like, if everything was empty, then surely love couldn't exist or everything would be meaningless. If I had no preferences, would I not then be completely boring or, or whatever, you know, some, some kind of jumping to something versus bringing it, um, into the moment and, uh, I, I was okay, good, it. good. Yeah. So just, um, want to say that, but that's good. So what does it mean to have no preferences? Um, well, I'd say it's related to the holy disinterest. It's almost like whatever is there is just, uh, was it Julia? It's just a phenomenon. It's just a phenomenon. That that can help be a way in. There's a kind of equality of things. It, it, just an acceptance. Uh, acceptance is going to be a big part. So the, yeah, basically it's just acceptance. It's, not, it's a fancy way of saying accept everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens though, like everything else, is it's a journey. In other words, we start practice and we have one sense of what acceptance means, but that just goes deeper and deeper. So at first... Uh, at first you can have a sense of, I really don't like this, but I'm trying to accept it. And, and some, some sense of, oh yeah, that actually helps. After a while, it's almost like a mode that one can get into with, with practice. It just deepens naturally of just almost like, because there's been a lot of acceptance, and because that acceptance takes away this push and pull of aversion that I've been talking about, coming into the perception more and more, uh, what I was saying at the start of the talk last night is that because there's not so much push and pull, we're not pulling out one duality over another. 
and and things tend to settle in a kind of equality. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that and then that that very perception of equality then lends itself to more no preferences, mm. right? So the whole thing, everything good snowballs good, mm. and everything bad, unfortunately, snowballs bad. So um, uh, when there's that equality there, again, someone who has very little practice could hear that and say, oh, that doesn't sound very nice. It sounds very bland and bleak and grey. But the actual experience of it, if, it's, if it hasn't got a version in it, is actually quite lovely, a kind of unity and uh, yeah, equality of things. So... I've reread the quote so many times mm-hmm. today, and keep looking, you know, yeah. like okay. well, thinking it's... about it and wondering what does it mean. In a way, it's not saying it's just another fancy way of saying what we've already been doing in terms of letting things be. Mm-hmm. It's just a, so. Mm-hmm. But what what will happen, as I say, is the more you do that way mm-hmm. that you've been doing, the more it will just become easier and easier. And with that easier and easier the perception of things as being not really that different anyway in themselves, mm. uh, that begins to get stronger, and then that allows more and more an ease of letting things they're be. They're not that different anyway because they're ultimately empty. There's yeah. no intrinsic. Yes, and because uh, we see that the very the very push and pull with things, mm. I like this, so I'll pull it towards me, I don't like that, so I'll push it, that actually heightens our perception mm-hmm. of things, different mm. things, the differences of things. Mm. So as I begin to relax some of that, it's almost like everything begins to have one taste. Everything just, uh, it's not so drawn out in that moment, and then it becomes easier to let go and have no preferences. It's the same. But it doesn't have one taste. Yeah. It does yeah. from your mind. Mm-hmm. Your mind doesn't have the preference, but then your heart yeah. says, isn't this amazing? Isn't, or, isn't what oh, amazing? Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Any, anything. So, yeah. so that I've been finding really interesting is that I used to think that equanimity, I used to have a real problem because one of my teachers used to call equanimity dispassion. And mm-hmm. I used to just, just to make me go crazy. Like, mm. how could you be dispassionate about everything? But it's that your mind, am I getting this right, your mind is dispassionate, Mm -hmm. but the place of your mind is then filled with your heart, mind, whatever you want to call it, but I I, I tend to differentiate heart and mind when I'm sort of in my walking around, waking life. And then your heart's comments, but in a really different, gentle way, just just in a, one of my teachers used to say, huh, (laughs) when it wasn't great, like, Huh. Or wow, like beautiful, or but it's not at all coming from the head. Is that have I got that right? Um, uh, I'd say yeah, maybe sometimes, but it can also even go beyond that. That there's a sense more of literally not so much se- in that in that time, in that space of time, and that state when you go deep into this no preferences or relaxing the aversion and clinging, etc. Uh, this kind of equanimity, that there's more, there's really less of a sense of the mind drawing out this and that experience and saying, this is good enough. It's, it's almost like everyone, everything um, has yeah, the same taste more, as you go deeper into it. And actually that the actual experience is being, it, it kind of, as I was saying last night, it, it doesn't form so strongly in consciousness as a prominent sort of this or that experience, perception, object, whatever we're choosing. But that's, that's as we go deeper into it. That's what I mean, though, in terms of the mind, certainly. There is no uh, labelling. When I say perception, I'm not talking just about labelling. 
I'm talking about the sense of uh, perception, experience, object. I'm using synonymously. So, um, so as, as you, if you follow this, if you keep, so I'm, I'm not taking away what you're describing. So that's wonderful. But I'm just saying, if you stuck with it and went even deeper, it would, it would, um, things would fade, recede. Not each different things would not be so prominent. This thing and then that thing, and and a sense of more, well less stuff going on, basically, and a kind of u- un- unity of uh, equality of experience. And then even the whole texture of experience begins to to uh, recede, fade, disappear. But, you know, like everything else is a spectrum. So what you're talking about is really good, and, and there's some other stuff to explore there, too. That wasn't in meditation at all. That was just walking around. Yeah, okay. In meditation, when you have a real chance to sustain this kind of letting go of clinging, no preference, and that's what I'm talking about, practicing ways of looking. You actually, okay, I'm really going to hold this way of relating to things. Then it gets a chance to go even deeper. And then you'll probably find that when you come out of meditation, the world is, is and even in that state, it's actually, it's not bland, bleak, boring, grey. It's actually filled with a loveliness, but it's less the loveliness of independent things, and it's more just the loveliness of freedom from all that different things. Are you going to... I've been sort of <coughs> doing that with the consciously looking through the lens of all duality being empty. All duality... I mean, mm-hmm. And it's, it has this effect of kind of relativizing everything. How do you mean relativizing everything? Well, it's the kind of equ- what you're calling equality, mm-hmm. I think. Okay. I mean, because... I mean, in fact, looking through the lens of duality be- begins to seem like a pretty limited yeah. way of seeing the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. But without it, nothing stands out. Right. Good, good. Um, because all... I mean, what I, I started to see all duality as empty. Yeah, good. There's nothing bigger or Good. smaller or upper or downer Great. or <laughs> Great. better or worse or I mean mm-hmm. So that would be well, that's, question, right? that's what we, the question. Um well how do we function then? Of course. So <laughs> we have to distinguish here between modes of perception. Yeah. And we have a mode that we're looking at and things will fade. We're we're concentrate where looking at things through that lens then, at that time, and what will happen is a fade, a fading of relativities, basically. Um, what that does, ideally, and in practice, what it does is it, when we move out of that way of seeing, back into the world of dualities, etc., it does not make everything meaningless and pointless and uh, without ability to function or ethical import at all. It actually, in the mystery of things, heightens our sensitivity to care and to ethics. And there's reasons for that, and we'll get into it. But um, but th- th- this is fantastic. So what you're doing is, uh, through the understanding of the whole thing I said about duality, then you're actually able to reach a point of conviction that that means all dualities are empty, and then you're looking through the lens of empty, 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 and that will bring a fading, because one's not uh, drawing out through the delusion of believing in the independent existence of what is actually right. dualistic. And it actually means that nothing has, in a way, more significance than anything else. Yeah, good, good. Yes. Or less. Right, exactly. So we can say that, and it's really, really important, that's true. <coughs> At a conventional level, 
um, you probably wouldn't want to say that. In other words, this goes back to what I said right at the beginning. Emptiness is a tool. I pull it out uh, in when I'm moving in the conventional world, when I need to let go of something or when it's helpful. At other times, I want to make every distinction between relative worth of, of things and, and really bring some care to that. So ultimate reality, conventional reality, both are important and not to kind of either lose one or the other or go too much to this side or that side. But that you're not saying that uh, and that's not in, in what you said. Uh, you know, that's not the sense that comes across from you. Um, so that's what I'm saying. It's like we can trust this exploration of emptiness med- meditatively. Uh, it, won't, it won't make things meaningless or in that, in that sense. But it does get, give a sense at some level there is this kind of sameness of things which is actually very liberating. Very liberal, and that's the point of it. Yeah. So, Pascal, yeah. In the moment, 